Radio Days Africa podcast is brought to you by the Vids Radio Academy. Days Africa 2020 is about to go live. Good afternoon, everybody, and uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for registering for this Radio Days 2020 online panel discussion today. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. We're going to be exploring the realities of um, broadcasting, of being in media, of writing in this time, of covering the lived realities of African people uh, during this time of the COVID-19 pandemic. But before we go any further, I'd like to thank CAS Media uh, and the, as well as the Vitz Radio Academy for their support of Radio Days Africa 2020. They are, of course, key to making all of this happen today. And uh, of course, you, are attendees, are welcome to send your questions and your comments uh, right here within the Zoom chat should you have any, I'll read out those questions at the end of the presentation. So of course the Q&A will be, I think in the last 10 or 15, uh, the last uh, 20 rather minutes of the session. So it's gonna be quite a sizable chunk of time that we're going to all have to speak to our panelists, to ask questions of them and to just dig in deep uh, and get the further insights from them. So this today's session is gonna be a particularly fun one, I think, if you have lots of question on questions on your mind. So you can also send us voice notes and that number to send the voice notes to is 079-528-0000. And uh, don't forget to hit us up on social media. The Twitter handle is uh, Radio Days Africa 2020 and that hashtag is RDA2020. And of course, don't forget the other hashtag, which is the new normal. I am Rafilo Mpakanyane, and I'm your host for this panel discussion today. So let's get to the topic at hand. What are we dealing with? Well, COVID-19 is a once-in-a-career event and pandemic. So from the hard facts of the humanitarian crisis, the economic impact and social discourse, a broadcaster needs to be connected to the crisis. So we are very, very lucky to be touching base with our colleagues at the BBC who uh, Radio Days Africa has had um, a long and fruitful relationship with uh, through the years. We're gonna be touching base and hearing from our colleagues at the BBC about how they've dealt with the initial onset of the coronavirus, um, how the BBC's news team is handling uh, the gathering, the reporting and archiving of content from across the globe. And it is my pleasure my pleasure to welcome today to the Radio Days Africa panel discussion, Toyosi Ogunshe, who is a, an editor, journalist, and the head of language services, West Africa at BBC World Service. Toyoshi, hi, welcome. Thanks so much for your time. Pleasure to be here today. It's definitely an honor to host you today. It really, really is. And of course, sitting next to you um, is your brother in arms and colleague, Hizoji uh, Oharidia, who's the editor of BBC News Pigeon. An honor to speak with you today as well, Ehi. Thank you for your time. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for having us. It's, it really is a pleasure. Um, and I've, I've been particularly looking forward to just finding out how you have been doing and handling this very, very interesting time that we're currently in um, as Africans, but you know, as, as people who are part of this global community. And you've got the very interesting, and I'm sure really complicated and exciting job of working with a vanguard or working for a vanguard media institution, that is the BBC, right? Um, and your job I'm sure is made even more exciting by heading up in your instance to also the BBC West Africa uh, Language Services Desk, but um, for you, Ehi, you have got a young, a fledgling, fledgling service on your hands, which is a BBC Pigeon, which is about, which turned three this year. And my goodness, um, I'm sure it's exciting times for you. It's, we've always got the macabre job of, uh, I guess, being excited and knowing that there's so much to do and so much service that we can be, um, many ways in which we can be of service to our um, consumers and our fellows, our fellow Africans in hard times, right? In the times of a pandemic. 
So it's been a strange time indeed. Um, I'm just going to start with you, Toyosi, before we, you launch into your presentation and ask you how you're handling this new normal, this time of working remotely and also having to keep a mind and keeping an eye on how you enable and empower your employees and colleagues to be safe whilst they do their job. I think it's the same experience for everyone. No one saw this coming. No one went to any seminar to practice on how to prepare during COVID. Um, there's no book on coping during COVID. And so we all woke up one morning and just had to deal with it. Yeah. Back to your question at the BBC, what's very paramount to us is the welfare of our staff. And we recognize that we cannot do excellent public service journalism if the journalists that work for us are not in the right state of mind. And bearing in mind that COVID affects everybody, journalists, doctors, whoever you are, and that you're a BBC journalist, or a journalist anywhere doesn't, is not immunity against COVID. And also the fact that journalists are also members of the community. They have fathers, mothers, sisters who are exposed to this um, pandemic or suffering one way or the other. And the first thing we asked ourselves is how can we keep the newsroom a safe place? where we can continue to do our jobs, but people still feel cared for, people feel protected. And the first step was to ensure that the Bureau itself um, in West Africa, Lagos, Abuja, and a Francophone Bureau in Senegal, Asif Evans. So we all had to take the precautions, people, you have to wear your mask, you have to wash your hands. And the first thing we did was to even reduce staff. So if you're not critical, you're not at work. And that meant that we had over 70% of our workforce working from home. And you know how difficult it is working from home in this part of the world, electric, electricity problems, mm -hmm. Wi-Fi mm -hmm. issues. And so it, was, it wasn't just dealing with a pandemic, it was also dealing with working from home for, for, a, very, for, 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 for a long period of time. And we had to come up with so many um, different ways that could make it easier for our journalists to work from home. And that helped a bit. It still suffered a few hiccups. But what I think we've also seen, and I think as journalists, we do not give ourselves enough credit, is the resilience of African journalists. I can speak, um, I can speak really strongly about that and how, as the old world was crashing and we're dealing with a new reality, we still had journalists who were ready to come to work and give people information they needed because fake news was a big issue. And a lot of people were even suffering more from fake news around coronavirus than from coronavirus itself. And so we had a big role to play. And I think what was really remarkable was how journalists in the newsroom dealt with it and continue to deliver in these trying times. Mm, mm, absolutely. Um, Ehi, you know, as I, as I mentioned, you are dealing with a fledgling service, three years old, and I was, I was very keen to find out from you how during this time, you know, you've been called to action, you've been called to demystify the coronavirus, you've been called to bust all of these myths and misinformation that's flying around. And I remember reading, just reading up on, you know, it's, the challenges that the service had experienced in its first year of being around, which is the standardization of pigeon, right? Across all these various regions and the contestation for what, you know, what should be the standard for pigeon and, you know, spelling and, and, and pronunciation, all these things. I'm curious that by the time that, um, if by the time the COVID-19 and lockdown became a reality, had you reached some kind of stasis um, so that you you'd agree, you'd agreed and established a standard for yourselves? And was that standard impacted in any way? by this pandemic and by lockdown? Um, two things stood out for us. Um, the service as a whole had to come to realization that this wasn't a time to uh, just publish headlines or tell stories because it was breaking news. This was beyond breaking news. Um, I think what kicked in first of all was our knowledge of our duty as a public service. Um, mm -hmm. It's something that we hold very dear to our hearts. Um, understanding that we are here to serve, um, we are not profit-driven, um, and then these audiences are cut across, and we need to pass across a message to them um, in simple, clear terms that they can accept, understand, and empower themselves. Um, so we kicked in basically with what it is that we've usually done. Um, over the last three years, we've gotten to a point where our audiences have come to accept um, our standards of how the language is written and spoken, um, and from our audience reach and our growth over a period of time, we've seen that um, they are also getting on board with their responses and their comments. Um, mm -hmm. We also saw that 
these people were coming to us with genuine needs. They weren't just coming to read stories and go. They wanted help. They wanted yeah. education. They wanted insights into what was going on. And as the BBC, a leader in this market, um, we are trusted. Um, we are proud of who we are, what we've accomplished. Um, like Toyosi would say, we are still the conscience of Nigeria as far as media organizations are concerned, <laughs> largely. Um, yeah, so it was it was a learning curve for us. It was an opportunity to show our capacity as the BBC and also to show our expertise in delivering great content that keeps people moving. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Lovely. Okay, so now that we've just gotten to know you a little bit more um, and we've warmed you up, and please, by, the, by all means, grab the screen. You can share with us and please start your presentation. I'm so incredibly keen to find out from you, Ehi and Toyosi, um, how you've been going about doing your work during this time and any insights that you've gleaned at this point. You've, pr you've pr uh, put together a presentation for us. So looking forward to it. And of course, just a reminder to um, the people who are attending this panel discussion, please send through your questions and your comments on the Zoom chat. And uh, I'm sure Ehi and Toyosi are going to be more than happy to answer all those questions once they're through with that joint presentation. Um, take it away guys all right um good afternoon wherever it is that you are we strongly believe that you can hear and see us clearly uh, we would try to make this as exciting as we can as we move along um so the first thing first what came to our minds was um the new normal understanding that it's no longer business as usual and what this means to us as an organization is accepting new realities, Josie. Yes. Um, as I said earlier, I'd like to first give an overview of the BBC in West Africa. Um, Lagos is the Anglophone headquarters of the BBC. And in Nigeria, we have BBC Elsa, BBC Pigeon, BBC Yoruba, BBC Igbo. BBC Elsa is the legacy service of the BBC um, in Anglophone West Africa. Um, over 60 years old in, in, in Nigeria, very well respected. It's given us the most reputation and the reputation and trust the BBC enjoys in addition to our English platforms. And over two years ago, three years ago rather, we launched Pigeon. And then two years after we launched Yoruba and Igbo. And um, these are the four language services in Anglophone West Africa, with Lagos being the headquarters and then Abuja being the being the bureau quarters of BBC Elsa. In Francophone Africa, we have BBC Africa. The biggest market there for us is DRC Congo, um, followed by Ivory Coast and then Senegal. And then in Anglophone West Africa, Nigeria is the biggest market, followed by Ghana, Cameroon, and a few others. And so when COVID started, for me, the, the, the first thing was to look after our journalists across the bureau. We're over 300 in West Africa alone doing this job for the BBC and spread all over. And it was about safety. And what worked in Lagos didn't work in Abuja. What worked in Nigeria didn't work in Ghana. What worked in Cameroon didn't work in DRC or Ivory Coast because different countries were dealing with a pandemic in different ways. And what that meant was beyond the bureaus in Lagos, Abuja, and Dakar, it was also looking at countries like Ghana, DRC, Africa Coast, and looking at what's the what's this, what are their what are government regulations and how do we adapt. At the BBC, we're very keen on merging our policies with government policies because we believe that if we are situated in a country, then we should abide by the regulations of that country. And what he meant for us was tweaking our regulations and abiding um, by government regulations. So for example, if there's a curfew, then there's a curfew. It applies to everybody, even though you work in the BBC, if everybody has to wear a mask, then you wear a mask. Um, so basically it was just applying different regulations in different newsrooms. But what was universal across West Africa was that this is an opportunity. And for me, that's We'll be going into what we did digitally and what the digital and radio space looked like for us in this during this period. But the central theme in West Africa was opportunity in a crisis. People come to the BBC all the time for trusted information, objective news. Um, and then we asked ourselves, where is the gap? 
What opportunity is there in this crisis? How do we continue to serve our audiences? How do we continue to educate them, give them perspective, um, even entertain them in this period? Because there was a lot of gloom and people were just sick of, of listening to bad news. Again, how do we, without distracting or making COVID look less important, how do we use our platform to give hope to people? And all of this I would explain in, in the next few minutes. All right, thank you, Chelsea. Um, so it spread from Asia to Europe, America, and then finally Africa. So throughout this period, you would want to argue we had more time to warm up, um, but it didn't really add up that much. At the end of the day, it got here. And like you can see in the pictures, that's what the newsroom here used to look like before. Smiling, cherry faces, everyone. Not like we're gloomy now, but come on. Yeah, sitting together, no social distancing. But look at the bottom picture, you can see what it looks like now. We've had to cut down on staff. Um, we had to sanitize the bureau. We had to put tapes on people's systems to actually measure two meters to keep people away from each other. So yes, in all this, you would ask yourself, so is this the new normal and what does it mean? What does it pretend for us? Um, but just like Toyosi said, um, what we decided to do was to focus on the opportunities in a crisis. Um, and one of those opportunities we did was we sat down and asked ourselves, what are we doing differently? What are we offering to our audiences that they can't get anywhere else okay. um, that is unique to us? What are we offering that is sustainable based on our new mode of operation? Um, how can we um, challenge people at the same time, empower them, challenge them to be better, pro to protect themselves, empower them to know what's right and wrong? Uh, we came up with a few ideas, you know, just basically no one was prepared for this, but like they say, if you're willing to try it out, then you can't get it wrong. So we came up with COVID-19 in and a quick, a quick one, Ehi, sorry to interrupt you. If you could share your screen with us, I'm not able to see anything at the moment. Oh, wow. oh wow. we've been sharing the screen. Okay. Oh, dear. Sorry. Apologies. Let me escape. There must have been a mistake. We thought the screen was on. Okay. Um, share screen. Okay, can you see it now? Perfect. Yes, I can see your opening okay. slide. Okay. Okay, can you see right. the next slide now? Okay, the next slide. Mm -hmm. BBC in West Africa, got it. Okay. So, so we've spoken to that We've spoken about, to, about this. Uh, Tuyasi was talking about um, how large our audience is. Uh, from the House of Service, we're here for over 60 yeah. years. Region, um, Afrique, Yoruba, Igbo, and then just Nigeria, which is um, a collaboration between channels and the BBC. So you want to just do a quick recap? No, just, so just Nigeria is our co-production, a TV co-production here in Nigeria with channels television and the BBC, and we produce a weekly show, um, Human Interest Programme, dealing with topical issues that affect young people in West Africa every week. And in addition to this, we have the genre programs health, sports, BBC Africa Eye, our investigation harm, um, and then all the other genre programs right here in West Africa, in addition to these language services. Okay, so for radio yeah. platforms, it's largely for, well, all services are on radio um, because we produce the minutes. Um, at the same time, we had to push ourselves hard to get more content like we will share with you now. Okay, so this was what I was referring to, what the newsroom used to look like and what it looks like now. Um, the smiling child faces, people without social distancing, working together um, in just what we used to know as the old normal, but this is what it looks like now uh, with tapes across uh, some computers measuring two meters away, people working from home and other people trying to just sustain the workflow from here. Okay, I missed one slide. Let me go back. Oops. Let me just do that again. All right. Yeah. So, opportunity in the crisis. We decided to look for um, diamonds in the rough, look for um, a path where there seems to be none. Uh, so, we came up with a few programs that we believed could empower people, encourage them to um, protect themselves, understand what was going on, how, why, why it was important to stay at home at the time, why it was important to respect the lockdowns, and why it was how it's uh, one person's actions that could spread the virus, one person not obeying these regulations could infect the whole community. 
So we came up with COVID-19 in 60 seconds. It's basically um, a myth-busting um, content piece where we talk about things people were taking as fake news, false news. For example, For example things like okay, if yes. you use shea butter, shea butter can cure coronavirus. <laughs> or eating garlic and or ginger. Or eating garlic and ginger will cure coronavirus. And I think, as I said earlier, fake news was such a big thing, and it's still yes, such it a big thing. And so COVID-19 in 60 seconds was addressing the major fake news around West Africa, busting those um, myths with scientific facts, and also giving people tips on a daily basis. So each, every day, all the language services in West Africa would produce a woman it's same script but interpreted differently um, it could be can shea butter truly cure coronavirus or are uh, only white people dying from coronavirus or is coronavirus a disease for or, the rich or is chloroquine um a cure for coronavirus exactly. things like that so just in one minute one minute i would play one so we could just see what it looks like it looks like okay let me just skip this i'll come back to it again So we just want to play one for you, but the system is acting up. I think it's going to come up now. Okay. Yeah. Coronavirus. Chloroquine are anti-malarial drugs. And you don't degrade. You think, say, chloroquine fits fight coronavirus? Chloroquine are anti-malarial drugs. And you don't degrade, Tete. Show evidence never day ground to show say chloroquine if it treats coronavirus. Them still the researcher. But as of now, researchers never recommend any drug to take treat or even cure COVID-19. What we know be say to overdose on chloroquine if it make you sick well. And if it bad reach, if it kill you. Doctors say make you know take chloroquine. Do self-medication for coronavirus. So this now our tip today. How you feel practice social distancing. Make you stay two meters away from everybody. Imagine say you the old broom for front and you know if you touch anybody where they your front. This one will help you maintain correct distance where we say you know go feel catch the virus or carry and give another person. In short, just sit down for house. I beg, stay safe and always remember to wash your hands. I think what was unique about COVID-19 and 60 seconds was it was young and it was shareable because we wanted content that not just stayed on our platforms, but that people could send to their friends, their family members. And then again, we tried as much as possible to break down this information and what it meant using um, broom, a broom, for instance, which people could find almost in every home. A broom plus the arm could give you about one and a half meters, almost two meters to do. Um, this measurement because people were asking what exactly is two meters people didn't understand what it was yeah, yeah let's let me play this other one it's an evil language i'm sure we would get the gist of what it is we'll still talk about it i think this was the one on garlic yes ginger garlic nayabas Ebo <laughs> so basically what she was saying is of course i'm so many of us don't understand the language what she was saying is well first of all garlic ginger onions can't um, prevents or stop coronavirus. There are no cures for coronavirus. And the tip was how to use the ATM, not to use it directly with your hands when you're using your debit card, how to use something else like a piece of cloth or cotton to punch on the system. Uh, we also had um, COVID-19 have your say. Now, this was particularly interesting to me because it was that leveler across 
uh, media platforms. So while you would have other people having press briefings with top government officials, the Minister of Health, um, having um, the head of the disease control center coming to talk to the people and not getting any direct feedback, COVID-19 have your say, was a platform where we invited people to come to Facebook Lives on across all our platforms, especially those in authority that were taking decisions about people's lives. And then they will tell us what they are doing and get people to also ask them questions directly. So it was holding power to account and people were able to have some form of confidence um, and air their views and tell them where they felt they were not doing well enough or how policies were not being practical enough. Yes, very right, ACJ. And I think another thing about COVID-19, obviously, which also very similar to COVID-19 in 60 seconds, all digital um, content is also the power of the language. In a country like Nigeria, where English is the central language where everybody speaks, and there was so much confusion about what is this corona? I mean, what is going on? It helped that, that we could break the language barrier and give people information. So it didn't matter whether you were literate or illiterate or you couldn't understand English. It helped that whatever language you spoke, we could give you that information that could help you in your language. And back to what A said about COVID-19, have your say. It was just a one-half Facebook live program where would bring the Minister of Health, the Commission of Health, whoever, um, was the authority in charge of coronavirus would come on the Facebook live and audiences would challenge them. And they'll say things like, Mr. Minister, you said you were going to do X, Y, Z. It has not been implemented. Are you not putting the lives of Nigerians at risk? Yep. So it was basically about holding power to account. And we did this, I think, twice or thrice a week for each language service across platforms, particularly during the lockdown, when people were home and were looking to engage with policymakers in all the states in Nigeria, and of course in in in. All right. So for the BBC Africa Corona Minutes, um, it was an opportunity for us to say, hold on, wait a minute. Um, the BBC Minutes, as it is worldwide, is well received across partner stations, yeah. um, across uh, our own platforms as well, where we have them hosted on the websites. Um, so we decided, why not have a Corona Minute specifically addressing what is going on because we noticed people kept asking what's happening in this country in Africa, what's happening in other country in Africa. So people in Nigeria want to know what's going on in Ghana, what's going on in Senegal, they want to know what's going on in Egypt, especially in South Africa where the numbers continue to uh, peak at this time. So you would see that for the BBC Africa Corona Minute, it's produced daily, it's still on, it's, it hasn't stopped. Most of this content are still on, still going strong. Um, it goes out, I think seven, one and 6 p.m. Um, every day it's saying, it's saying the same thing. It's saying, this is what is going on. This is what you should know. This is how you should protect yourself. Don't get yourself carried away by fake news. It's, it's still debunking fake news and affirming what is right and what is wrong. I think one of the biggest challenges of the BBC Africa Corona Minute was how do we ensure that he has a long shelf life? Because everybody was on their mobile phone. They could tell what was happening in Senegal, in Kenya, in South Africa. And it was about, we're producing this minute, not just for BBC audiences, but for our partners. How do we ensure that when we give them this new minute, it doesn't become still the next minute? Because so many things were happening. And at the same time, a news around Corona was becoming um, very still, very, very quickly. And I think one of the ways we were able to deal with that challenge was to ask ourselves, what is the value on this? How do we produce a minute where once you listen to it, it improves whatever information you have and it helps you make better decisions about your health and safety? All right. Um, next one that you can see is Palon COVID. Let's talk COVID. Yeah. Um, it was, it's a 10 minutes radio magazine examining the impact of the pandemic on the region and on people's daily lives. Basically doing the same thing like we said before. But the, difference, but the difference here is, apart from being in French, it was an opportunity for experts for the BBC to bring experts in various fields. So for instance, someone is um, talk, talking about IT, talking about health, talking about um, how it is that people are still managing to get food supplies. We got people to come in talking about transportation, what should be done, how to resolve these matters. We got people, experts to come, of course, from where they were using technology like Zoom, like this, um, to throw more light on these things and just point people in the direction of, of knowledge, you know, empowering them and telling them this is what you should do. And just like Corona, um, same thing with Corona in Amafita, which is in Hausa language, yeah. basically doing the same thing. Yeah. So I, I know we're talking about digital opportunities, but we're still in a market where radio is king. And while we'll continue to drive for huge digital growth, it's very important. And it was, it was important and still important that 
our major radio audiences were not left behind. And that was what birthed Palonkuvid and Corona Inamafita. Corona Inamafita, again, is a one, I think, one hour or 45 one minute, hour. one hour program on BBC Alsa Radio, which is still the biggest Alsa radio audience for the BBC in West Africa. And what we had then was to bring experts, common radio for one hour life, and people could ask their questions. One of the things we did with this radio programs was to think about how do we digitalize them? So because a lot of them were live, we could cross post them on Facebook um, live. So the digital audiences could also ask their questions and they get answered on radio. And we also had our partners, our digital partners also cross promote it on their own Facebook um, pages. In Nigeria alone, there are about 30 partners for Corona in Amafita. Yeah. And then something else that was really key about Corona in Amafita was uh, when this situation in Kano, yes. um, the largest commercial city in northern Nigeria, started spiking the cases of coronavirus. It was Corona in Amafita. That was the go-to platform yes. for people yes. to know exactly what was going on, yeah. considering the amount of fake news that was coming out all over the place about, about unconceivable number of deaths in the day, talking about the spread, talking about it's fake, people putting all sorts of videos saying you can't get, black people can't um, contract the virus, but Corona in Amafita was key at that point in time. Even the government at some point had to refer people to Corona in Amafita as an authority when it comes to um, managing the situation. So talking about opportunities, it wasn't just opportunity, an opportunity for us to produce digital content. It was also an opportunity for partnerships because we saw new partners come on the BBC um, platform to take our content. And it wasn't just our radio content, even for our digital partners, even state governments. We are state government taking the BBC, whether it was COVID-19 in 60 seconds or Palong COVID or Corona in Amafita, and asking us, can we have this in digital content? And we had state governments put it on their state Instagram, their state Facebook pages, their state Twitter, even the, the NDDC, NDDC, that's the NCDC, the yeah, the National, the National Center, Center for Disease, Disease that was in charge and is still in charge of um, taking care of, um, of COVID-19 in Nigeria would often direct people to the BBC to, 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 to get this information. So it wasn't just media partnership. We also saw partnership with state government. We saw partnership with civil society, the MacArthur Foundation, um, collaborated with BBC Alsa to back Corona in Amifita. And so for us, it started opening our minds to new ways of partnerships beyond media organizations. And we'll come back to that later. We won't talk about it now. Okay, yeah, he says I should talk about it now. <laughs> so while we're talking about partnerships, digital partnerships be beyond website, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, we asked ourselves, where else are these audiences? And so we bettered a new deal, which we're very proud of about a month ago with MTN. MTN is the biggest teleco provider, telecommunications provider in this part of the world. And we partnered with them, giving them the BBC Minute in four languages. The BBC Minute, again, is a one-minute news, um, news current affairs roundup round that, we, that we give to our partners, you know, that gives them the latest information on business, fashion, tech, politics, whatever information that can improve their decision making on a daily basis. And so starting, I think, four weeks ago, we signed this deal with MTN, where the BBC Minute in English, AUSA, Yoruba, Igbo and Pigeon is now on the B on the MTN app, which is still the biggest teleco app in Nigeria. At the moment, MTN has over 60 million subscribers to um, on its platform, and we're hoping that a huge percentage of the subscribers will be able to consume the BBC Minute on the MTN app. And I think, apart from the fact that this is innovative, and it's where, free, and it's free, it's free, where you find a media organization like the BBC partnering with a telecom giant to provide public service journalism to people, it also helps us debunk fake news. I mean, it was really big during Corona, where we'll tell people, you know what, even if you do not can listen to BBC on Radio, if you have the MTN app, you can get all the latest information um, about Corona and whatever, whatever other information you need. And you know, um, Tracy, one of the huge concerns we had before we went into that partnership with MTN was about the doubters. Yes. People still on this continent still do not believe coronavirus is real. Yeah. As alarming and as sad as it sounds, it's, it's unfortunate, but that's what it is. And I think um, as practitioners, as people who are in this space, it's still our duty mm. to call people to this awakening, this rude awakening that it's real. Right, I think we are running out of time. So um, what's the future normal? Um, what do we see 
panning out over the next six months? Well, personally, and I think this would also represent um, part of what the BBC stands for, coronavirus is here to stay um, for now. But tr- truth is, it's, 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 it's more realistic to accept it, um, live with it, and understand that it's our actions that can make it spread or stop its spread, um, especially when people are still talking about, experts are talking about um, a second wave. Um, it's for us as an organization and people who are on this platform to see it as a challenge, you know, that we should take personal while we are protecting ourselves, but at the same time to preserve what it is that we know from the old from the old life that we, we've always had. Absolutely. I think that if there's one thing Corona as method for the BBC and how we work is creativity. There are so many things we never knew we could do that we realized we could actually do. So apart from creativity, it also helped us use our resources better because we're forced to stay at home. We couldn't deploy, but we had to keep journalism going. We had to keep pushing our stories. And so it forced us to use our little resources in the most um, productive in the way. Most productive so you, would way. See, you would see people, uh, for instance, now people don't come to radio stations anymore yeah. uh, to take interviews, basically, which has cut out the lateness time. Nobody comes late anymore because it's now online. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you realize you can't spend so much money to deploy to do stories. Yeah. Um, you'd most likely have to use UGCs or get people on the other end to film and send to you. Yeah. And you'd have to manage it as it is or yeah. you use a Zoom or a Skype interview. Yeah. So it's still about empowering people and training people. So this situation, I think, for the future um, shows us that the multi-scale journalist um, will most likely thrive. Yes. Um, journalists yes. with little skills or little skill sets um, the mobile phone, the laptop, basically is all you need these days to get yourself moving, to present packages, to put things together, um, edit your videos, edit audio. And so largely, it's it's an opportunity. I, I see in this situation an opportunity for people to learn, to have skills for themselves, and at the same time, to understand that the walls, as we used to know it, the walls of the newsroom is no longer um, a safe, creative space that you always have. No. And I think in addition to that, A, what, what all this has also shown us, particularly those of us that operate in the digital space, is that all hope is not lost. I know that until COVID happened, there was a lot of um, anxiety about the blogs taking over the space on professional platforms operating in our, in our space and taking away young audiences who often have so many options and are distracted. And I think that when we saw the spike, um, during COVID, particularly during the lockdown and people coming to us for information. What it taught us was that as long as we can add value, people know where to go to when they need information. So it's not just about giving information, it's about adding value. What yeah. value are you bringing? What are you giving in addition to what it is that people already know? Absolutely. How consistent are you delivering this kind of information? Yeah. And at the same time, Basically, no, truly, just tell people stories. Yeah, I think people want to know what's going on with the next guy. And of, of course, the importance of conversations, mm-hmm. because people also wanted to talk. I often say that one of the biggest challenges we have as journalists is we think we know what people want, and we're just pushing it out to them, and there's no opportunity for them to engage. We're in a world of engagement and conversations, exactly. and people go to where they know they will be heard. And so one of the things we also did a lot was to think about our engagement with our audiences, and, and we, how every story can become a conversation. And we did that through social listening. It yes. was important for for us to understand that at this point in time and moving forward, something we're going to adapt as well. Yeah. Um, you have to listen to what the audience wants yes. so that then you produce what they want, not what you think they, they want. want. Yes. Yeah. I, yes. Think, I think that's that's most of it. So I guess that's it from Aya and myself. All right. Fantastic. Um, that was really, really uh, interesting. And I have so many questions whilst I've enjoyed the insights that you've given us so far. So first of all, I guess, congratulations on achieving the goal of uh, having the state, the government come to you and point its citizens to you as an authority, right? And a COVID-19 communication authority on how to mitigate uh, the effects of this uh, virus and even to, um, even to stop the spread. So what I'm really curious about, uh, first off, um, uh, a, a, uh, is, you know, the impact that um, the impact that uh, your communication, the work that you've done during this uh, this pandemic and lockdown, have had. I'm curious about statistics and figures, the sort of engagement and interaction with either your website um, and even your radio, your radio uh, communication. 
Do you have any sense of how that's grown or, or remained the same? Um, I can say for a fact that um, for the websites and radio, um, respectively, we've seen in some cases about between 70 to 100 sure. percent increase in spike in audiences coming in. Yeah. Um, it was a, it's sadly enough, but true. It's created an opportunity for us to actually get more numbers from our audiences. It, it was a real opportunity for us, and we, we're still taking advantage of it yeah. as it is. Yeah. Tosi, you know, you have got a huge task on your hands, a very, very big task, and we'll unpack, we'll unpack that further and just get more into that. But I'm very, very curious to find out from your perspective, um, and you spoke about listening to what social listening and listening to what people wanted to hear from you. What did you find in the end? Of course, education and relevant information about COVID-19 is key. But what did you find that people um, were really chasing for in terms of the content that you're putting out? Because there's that weird tension, of course, of COVID fatigue, right? Everything is about COVID, but at the same time, uh, other aspects of life and politics and economics and finances also continue. So you have to keep a mind on that as um, the BBC language services. But then you also, as you pointed to, have to keep a mind on the fact that people do need some relief from the pandemic at the same time. So in terms of, you know, what was getting hits on your online platforms, um, how, did it, how did it all balance out and shake out in the end? Or how is it shaking out? So I'll break it into two. COVID content that worked really well and non-COVID content that worked really well. So I'll start with non-COVID content. So one of the things we did was to bring back our really, because we're not deploying, it was an opportunity to look at all our feel-good stories that we had done in the past two years that people had forgotten and then we repeated them. And people were like, oh, yes, you know, what's the update? And then we gave an update on those feel-good stories. Uh -huh. um, another thing we did was to ask people to share with us the creative things they were doing at home during lockdown. What new skill did you learn? Can you teach it to us? And so particularly for young people, you know, they were talking a lot about, you know, I've used this lockdown to learn a new skill I can sew. And we're looking for inspirational stories of young people doing great, amazing stuff during COVID. Um, back to COVID content, feel good content was people getting married during COVID, people finding love during COVID. Um, stories of empathy and compassion, strangers just showing care to other people, either giving them food or just being kind worked really well. COVID related, people wanted information they could use on a daily basis. It was nothing complicated. I often say that the best stories are not so complicated. People were looking for, so what is the time for the lockdown today? Because there was all kinds of information out there and people didn't know and they were scared of being arrested by the police. So just even sometimes just giving them accurate information like this is the coffee period was enough to just see a spike. So it was basically information people could use on the daily concerning COVID. The second one that did really well explain us, mm, mm. you know, who wanted sure. to know what, what, this term what does this mean? term mean? Like people how wear, to wear a face mask. For example, how to wear a face mask. How to make a face mask. How to make a face mask. Yeah, yeah. What kind of sanitizer, because the market was full with all kinds of sanitizers, which one would really protect you yeah. against um, COVID? So basically information people could use on a daily and stories with that, just feel good stories about people finding up during a pandemic really worked well. Again, for the BBC in the UK, the track has worked well where you could tell how many people have coronavirus in your area. And so by just clicking on that particular graphic or digital piece, you could say, I'm living in, say, South End London, or and you just click on it, and then it just shows you where those people are located, how many cases, and it was being updated. So basically, daily useful information worked. And I, then again, you know, um, infographics in the form of trackers, um, what was going on around you in per states, um, per country, across the continent. Uh, we had those live trackers coming on board and they are still effective till now. Yeah. And then again, the BBC launched what I, could, what I would brag about to be the largest education intervention yeah. across the world. So you have on radio and TV, daily classes, which are still going on now, teaching children about what they should be learning in school, yeah. keeping them engaged and keeping their minds productive. Yeah. Mm, and of course, mm. the fake news content, because that was all over the place. What 
and we'll get we'll get to fake news in a, in a minute because that is a huge uh, point of just consternation and worry and anxiety even now four months into you know our uh, our lockdown and uh, experience with COVID-19 uh, we're still dealing with it we're definitely dealing with it in South Africa what I'm curious about is because of the huge spread of um, regions demographics um, ethnicities languages that you're dealing with how, from your vantage point, Stoicy, does it work when you have to be aware of cultural sensitivities that might affect how well or how badly messages are received or how, you know, how they're accepted? Um, first of all, it boggles my mind. So bow down to you, first of all. But secondly, you know, how do you, how have you managed to get it right or to get on top of that? Because um, so much of speaking people's languages is also just being able to understand the nuances of their lived experiences. Brilliant question. So what we did was we usually had a management meeting on Monday where we'd come up with, I'll, I'll use COVID-19 in 60 seconds as an example. And during the editorial meeting, we'll say, so what is going to be the content of COVID-19 in 60 seconds for the week? So we produce it in advance and everybody's in the meeting from Francophone to Anglophone West Africa, everybody's there. And then we pick central themes that we think would up appeal to everybody. For example, Monday, we're going to bust the fake myth around sheer butter. On Tuesday would be the fake myth around, oh, black people, coronavirus doesn't kill black people. And then we pick the central things. Now, how do we ensure that we're not hurting sensitivities and sensibilities? We have a planning desk where the central script is written. And then each language service, Yoruba, Igbo, Pidgin, Alsa, Afrique, now interprets that script for their audiences. So same script, but interpreted differently. So what's how the pigeon service, a service would interpret it might be different from how the, the evil service. service or the house service would interpret it. So that way, because even though the, the script was central because it was being um, interpreted par service, it helped to guard against autumn people's sensitivities. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I just want to remind um, the our participants on the Zoom chat that they can send through their questions or comments. Uh, they, they'll obviously be read out now. That's what we're currently doing. Here's one from Sbongi Limpofu, who wants to know what strategies have you put in place in your newsroom for fact checking? Uh, fact check, uh, checking, rather. Um, yeah, how have you guys gone about gone about it? Um. 80% of the time when there's information or something comes out, basically we have the same verification tools. Yeah. Um, word of mouth is not enough. You would have to go as far as to get into the source. Um, for as far as the COVID-19 concerns were, as far as they are concerned about COVID-19, we stuck to WHO. We stuck to Nigeria Center for Disease Control. We stuck to health authorities that can't afford to get it wrong. Um, if it's if we can't verify from there, we'll leave it out. Mm. For instance, I'll give you an example: um, the case of chloroquine, for instance, and then the issue of the drug for Madagascar. Um, it was yeah. said that it was it was working. And people were taking it to Madagascar, and no one had died. And then they were going to ship it to Nigeria. So yes, it came to Nigeria, and then we had to fact check with the federal authorities, and they said, well, they've taken this to their own labs to check, and basically it's just an anti-malaria. And Nigeria mm. is not going to use it. Yeah. Yeah. So we went as far as getting to the labs, getting the results, verifying these things before we went out to say it. Just to add to what A said, so every BBC journalist is trained to fact check. Apart from my internal fact checking tools, I think the number one rule of fact checking is to check it with somebody else apart from yourself. Um, so we have the two person rule, two people minimum must see a story before it's published. But then the BBC has a reality check unit, which is our fact checking unit where all big stories, particularly the ones we need to fact check, goes through them. It's a very small unit and they're often pressed. And that's why it's important for every BBC journalist to be able to fact check. But for the really big stories, for example, the Marga Madagascar story, where everybody in the world was talking about it. We have this journalist whose only job is to fact check the stories. They sat in London and Nairobi, and so we would pass it through them. Then they produce central fact checking stories for the all of the BBC, whether it's an African story or an Indian story, for everybody to, to adopt. 
Yeah. And so to that, you know, what you touched on earlier on uh, during the presentation and the opportunities that this pandemic has now clear, made clear and apparent, which is, you know, that mobile journalism or that citizen journalism and the ability for anybody to essentially broadcast and to report as, you know, as, as the BBC uh, language service and BBC Pigeon, how are you utilizing those on the ground community reporters whilst of course keeping an eye to you know maintaining those normal journalistic standards and practices um fact checking of course being just one of them um it's 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 not been easy I, I would say this for a fact um but at the same time we found a way around it um so you have someone who has a story to share and you want the person to actually get all the angles in it right um, you basically find yourself teaching and you're telling the person okay so um, you, this is what you are saying has happened. Who are the, what's the other side? There must be another side to this story, and we can't just go with your side alone. At least get the other side to it, and then that's where we come in with our own resources. We would usually know someone who is either a stringer, if it's a place where we do not have a reporter, we would have someone who is a stringer who would go the extra mile to fact check from the other side to tell us what's going on. That's where we have two sides to every story. And then what it is that they are sending into us, we verify as well. So yes, it's about it's it's presented for us an opportunity to teach people, to empower them to understand that um, while it is that you are at home or while it is that you are staying where it is that you are, you can still be a part of this news uh, production process and at the same time um, get content out there from the users. That's that, that's how we went around it. Mm -hmm. You know, another another thought um, that comes to mind as 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 you bring that up is how to how to have um, that level of engagement while still, of course, trying to create original content. Right, seventy percent of your staff is not in the office. You've got thirty percent, um, I, I guess, probably doing more than they usually might have, or then operating under difficult circumstances. Um, how do you create or have you been able to maintain and tell those original stories despite the outside circumstances? Um, it's, so it's a balance between quantity and quality. Um, you can have um, 10 stories and at the end of the day, you realize you have only two doing well. So when it comes to planning for our original content, we try as much as we can every way possible to put in a strategy that allows us to maximize the potential of every story. So if, um, for instance, we hear that there's a lady who does womb massage in Delta States, and mm -hmm. we know that this story has the potential to be big at this point in time, first of all, it's fresh air, it's a distraction from coronavirus, um, it's an opportunity for people to learn something new about cultures and practices in Nigeria, um, at the same time, you want to check how safe is this womb massage and how does it work. Um, so yes, you put a cultural to this contributor, and we have them use a mobile device, record themselves, and we talk them through the interview. Sure. So it's an opportunity for us to act. We, again, like I said, we are teaching people how to use modern devices to tell their own stories. Just to emphasize, was, emphasize what A said, I think for us it was a thing of quality and you know over quantity. We couldn't deploy as much as we used to, but guess what, it forced us to think more because we knew we didn't have resources to it so whatever story you're doing it had better be good it had better be really really good so it forced us to produce fewer but better quality better quality stories yeah mm -hmm. and so for people who and then we had to reassign roles we had no choice but to reassign roles so if you were a reporter and you could no longer go on the streets then maybe you'll be the one now subbing mm -hmm. you know because we, we, we didn't need you to report so we we, we reassigned roles and concentrated on the few quality pieces that will do well with our audiences. And if you used to sub, and now the story is where you are, you'd have to switch roles with the reporter. So you would, explain, you, the you would explain to the reporter what you do, <laughs> and the reporter will explain to you what he used Seriously, to do. Seriously, we have people doing new jobs. We have people so doing was, new jobs. <laughs> so, so it was an opportunity for us to experiment. <laughs> and you notice people learn new skills. Yeah. And now we're confident to say we have more people who can sub and can edit. <laughs> Well, you know, speaking of new skills and having to repurpose and rethink your role in the newsroom and, and, and how you operate, uh, I'm looking at this top yourself and the COVID, uh, what, the one minute, um, COVID-19 one minute. And I'm just thinking to myself, did you ever imagine that you'd be in a position where you'd have to not only um, produce news or, or create uh, content for um, 
for public good and for public service. But now you're also essentially creating it for virality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's not necessarily what journalism of this kind yeah. is known yeah. for. Yeah. yeah. Tell me how you, uh, tell me where you found that muscle or <laughs> that, that, that ability to, to make things that would then be able to live off platform and be forwarded from phone to phone uh, to uh, other platforms like Facebook. I think as leaders, we must never underestimate the capacity of our teams. I think one of the things is, you know, when you work with people every day, you tend to easily forget how creative they can be. Mm-hmm. And so what we did was immediately COVID started. We called a news meeting, everybody in West Africa, what are we going to do with this crisis? And so you have a room of journalists from senior journalists to junior journalists to editors to planners to VJs. And everybody was just coming up with ideas saying, you know what, this is an opportunity, let's do this. Somebody says, no, no, that's not gonna work with young people. But what kept us focused when you talk about virality? There's some principles that don't fail. Number one, it must appeal to young people. It must appeal to women. Mm-hmm. It must appeal to, it must be shareable. It must be creative. It shouldn't be too long. Like yeah. there's some basic element. Once you get those basic elements and then you can weave whatever content you have around those basic elements, mm-hmm. you must also have the human element in it. People must be able to relate with it. Once you have those pillars in your story, it will go viral. So it was basically bringing everybody together, coming up with ideas and people understanding that this is an opportunity. And I think that message was what made people begin to think about how to, how to, how to generate, how to produce content that resonated with people. Again, the focus is not for it to go viral because if you focus on that, it's not likely to go viral. The focus is in the audiences what will our audiences connect with? And once you understand what your audiences want, then virality is guaranteed. So we ask ourselves, so if I'm sitting at home, what do I want to know today? We just put ourselves, we remove ourselves from our journalist bodies and put ourselves in a 23-year-old sitting at home and we're asking, what does that 23-year-old want? And we're talking to young people. What exactly do you want during this period? What do you want the BBC to produce for you? And I think all of that came together to produce viral content. And then I'll chip in. Um, Piggy Bank of what she said, um, it's still about social listening. If you are listening to the audience and you are paying attention, they would always drop hints for you into what they want. If you're serving them what they want, it will go viral. Mm-hmm. But how it is that you serve it, there comes again another challenge. Understanding the platforms through which you operate, yeah. understanding what your story is, yeah. Because two, three organizations can tell the same story and only one will go viral. Yes. Because that one person paid attention, listened, and served what was wanted per time. Yes. So I'm keeping an eye on the clock and we've only got three minutes left, unfortunately. But, you know, very, very quickly, um, uh, Chelsea, you spoke about your role as a leader and the abiding theme throughout this time, throughout the, um, the, the conversations about working from home is also the mental health and wellness capacity that of companies uh, and employers that has grown. How, do, how are you keeping an eye on that? In fact, how are you social listening, uh, not, with, uh, your, not with your audiences, but with your employees and colleagues? Okay, so we have two, two levels or three levels. The first one is the pan-BBC level, where there's a two times a week meeting, all staff meeting in the world, in the BBC, where mm. all staff come to talk about their consent and what the BBC should be paying attention to. We have weekly mental health sessions where our mental health experts provide these webinars and you can come in. That's on the pan-BBC level. On the West Africa level, we also have regular meetings. Editors are meeting with their teams, doing daily check-ins. Are you okay? What do you want? How can I help you? Because Come to think of it, we've also had colleagues that had COVID-19 and we had to take care of them and how that was also impacting on the mental health of other people that had to you know, deal with that news. And so basically it was just about showing we cared in terms of providing the tools people needed to work, daily or weekly conversations with them to be sure that they were fine and immediately providing help once we detected that there was a challenge. 
Mm, absolutely. Um, your own personal lessons that you've taken out of this uh, pandemic so far and operating in this new normal, and it could be professional, um, you know, your own professional perspective, um, or it could be, you know, deeply spiritual, uh, whatever it is. What has this time taught you? Uh, I'll start with you, uh, A. Um, leadership is about listening. Leadership is about service to people. It's not enough to call yourself a leader if you're not going to pay attention to what the people are saying to you. You don't have all the ideas. Um, don't underrate anyone in a newsroom. Um, people see things that you don't see um, and you should be willing to experiment and take a chance. Don't get stoic in your ways. Don't think you know it all. Um, just be there for the people, yeah? And then they'll be there for the team. He said everything I wanted to say. <laughs> just one more thing, just to say that there's opportunity in every crisis. If we look closely, there's an opportunity in that crisis. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for both your time today. I really appreciated your insights and um, the experience that you shared with us as well. Hopefully our colleagues have onboarded all of them and will be able to implement some of those insights as well in their own experiences around the continent. But uh, congratulations on the work that you're doing right now and you've done yes. so far. And all the best, all the best and strength to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. And uh, to uh, the, our participants as well on this Zoom chat, really appreciate you being here with us. So once again, a thank you to Toyosi Ogunche, the Head of Language Services at BBC World Service, and Ehi Oharedia, the Editor of BBC News Pigeon. A big shout out to CAS Media and the Vits Radio Academy, as well as uh, the rest of our sponsors today. We can't do, we couldn't do this without them. Thank you. That's our session done for this afternoon. And Rafilo Pagagnani, and this has been COVID-19 in the newsroom. Thank you for joining this Radio Days Africa session. Click to watch or download the podcast. That was a Radio Days Africa podcast brought to you by the Vids Radio Academy.